Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Marco Collins. Marco is a longtime Seattle radio personality. At the height of the grunge era, he was the most notable DJ and also music director at Seattle's 1077 The End. It is absolutely impossible to overestimate Marco's impact on the 1990s Seattle music scene or the alternative movement that followed. Marco was the key figure in breaking artists like Nirvana, Beck, Weezer, Garbage, and many others. When Marco shined his light on an artist, more often than not, mainstream acclaim followed. Marco's life and career so far were chronicled in the 2015 documentary, The Glamour and the Squalor. I highly recommend you watch it. I count it as a privilege that Marco chose to spend some time talking with me, so please enjoy. Marco. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. The weather's nice today. You're here in Seattle, right? Yeah, I'm just south of the city in Normandy Park. Oh, that's where we are. We're in Burien. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at least we're staying socially distant. (laughs) Yeah, right? Uh, Yeah, I live live down here as well. Have for uh, quite a few years now. I just Uh, moved here about a year ago from Columbia City. What brought you to uh, Burien? You, uh, you had to flee the city? Uh, kind of, yeah. I was going through some, uh, some personal things, and a buddy of mine lived down here and had room. So I moved in with him, and I've been here ever since. <laughs> uh, and it's interesting, Lawrence, because I don't have a car. So I take the, the bus with the exception of, you know, during the pandemic. So uh, let me tell you, my Uber fees have been through the freaking roof. But yeah, that's, that's been the only real sort of challenge to living out here is we live pretty close to the water and, you know, it's gorgeous. Like, you know, going, you know, we've been crabbing. This, this year I've been crabbing like six times. I've never done that in my life. We're <laughs> dropping crab pots all along the, you know, in between uh, Bashan and here. And uh, it's just been a whole different experience living down here for me. Um, how about you? What's your experience been with? Being well, in it's Park? very funny. I was, as you were speaking, I was thinking I, when I moved down here, I didn't have a car either. Um, I moved to Seattle from uh, after being in New York for 20 years. And so um, I would, you know, I was full on, like I, I lived near the light rail um, and I was sort of making the commitment to not uh, having a car. Yeah. I was out here, uh, I got here in September, I got out here to Normandy Park in September and um, around early May, I was like, man, I'm kind of sick of my Uber and Lyft fees um, like right. you. Uh, yeah, and uh, so I went through this whole mental gymnastic though of like, what's the ethical way to buy a car? Do I buy a new car, a hybrid car? Do I buy an old car since it's already built? And so right. what I wound up doing is I made a pandemic purchase. I bought a 1992 um, Volvo 240 GL um, oh, that nice. I found on Craigslist. And nice, uh, it's, 
<laughs> beautiful. I mean, it was a couple grand. It was nothing. You know, it was, a, it yeah. was not a lot of money, but it's in beautiful right. condition. And um, so that's what I tool around in. Uh, my kids and my partner are still in South Seattle. So um, okay, they're about a mile away from each other. So I, uh, I just, I do the, you know, my world has gotten very small. I was, uh, I was traveling every week, really, um, before the pandemic. And it's sort of right. how I've lived most of my adult life. And now it's, you know, I live within like a five mile radius and don't go anywhere else. <laughs> right, right. It's so weird, man. I work at KEXP and, you know, I used to hang out on the hill all the time. That's where I lived before I moved here. And now I go out there and it's sort of desolate. But I'm always amazed, though, when you actually get out of your like three square, you know, mile radius that there's people living their lives like nothing ever happened. Like I, you know, either it's totally desolate or there's tons of people. Like if we were on Queen Anne right now, I'll bet you all the restaurants would be hopping um, because it's Friday. Yeah, it's it's weird, man. The hill is similar. I get go up there and I'm just amazed that so many people are living <laughs> this way. Well, I, it's funny because you know I I, I saw the documentary. Um, oh, you did. Yeah, cool. and I you, you know I hear you on the airwaves, and you know as you know as somebody who loves who who grew up loving radio, you get that weird sense of knowing someone and. Um, hearing you speak about radio and watching the documentary reminded me about the power of radio in my young life. And so I grew up outside of New Haven, Connecticut. And um, I don't know, I just felt like we had radio coming from all directions, Boston, New York, Hartford, New Haven. I can remember the DJs. I can remember the times they were on. I can remember, you know, sneaking in my room late at night on a Sunday night to listen to Dr. Demento. Oh, um, Yeah. Just all those. I remember that too. Yeah, of course. That's a great memory. (laughs) King Biscuit, all that stuff. Yep. King Biscuit um, Flower Hour. Yeah. And hearing like Fog Hat Live or something. Um, Yeah. But (laughs) I wonder, and you spoke about it a little bit in the documentary, but what, what did radio do for you as a kid? Oh, for me, it was everything. You know, for me, it was, it was, honestly everything i it was the soundtrack to my life across the board i i think also i was a kid that liked to spend time alone and it was just great company i had a younger sister i had friends but we lived in kind of the middle of the mountains and um i could get radio from san francisco in northern california and it was just it was everything to me I don't remember being as into it at a young age as my cousins do. They were like, we knew you were going to be a DJ and get into radio at a very early age, because don't you remember we come over and you'd be DJing, you'd have like your record player and an A track and you know, you'd have all this stuff set up and you made us write requests and we had to put the request on the table. I don't remember any of that, but they, they swear by that. I just loved it. I, I recorded music. My mind was very open to music and I credit my dad for that. Um, but I wanted more. I just, you know, I wanted to sort of just soak it all in. And uh, I remember discovering stuff like Kiss, Cheap Trick. Last night on KEXP, I played Helen Reddy. <laughs> I played Angie 
because, uh, or Angie Baby, rather, uh, I used to love that song. You know, girls sitting in a room alone, listening to the radio. It was her only friend, and, you know, until a, until a gentleman caller came in. And that also started, I was thinking about this when I played the song and did like a rest in peace dedication. That song sort of kicked off my love for creepy music. You know, it, it, so everything I've ever gravitated towards has some sort of a spooky, creepy feel to it, whether it's dreams and rumors from Fleetwood Mac um, to Kiss because of the blood, the monsters, like everything that I've ever sort of embraced has either been a little eerie, a little creepy, or sort of spiritual in some way. And what about like, does that extend to like the, um, the teen peril songs, like leader of the pack and, uh, <laughs> that kind of shit, like, you know, the, the, <laughs> yeah. no, no, not so much that stuff. <laughs> it, it's more otherworldly, you know? So, okay. you know, to me, knowing that Stevie Nicks, what, you know, considered herself a Welsh witch, I just thought was, you know, I was a kid that was into monsters. Like that was my thing. I made monster models. My whole room was covered in Frankenstein and Dracula and the werewolf and the creature from the Black Lagoon, glow-in-the-dark models that I made as a kid. So the moment I saw the Kiss Alive 2 album cover, I was like, oh, my God. He's got blood dripping out of his mouth. That Kiss, the most terrible band of all time. Like, <laughs> I go back and I listen to those songs, and I'm embarrassed, and I still love them. You know, yeah. I'll, I'll Destroyer is like one of my favorite records, but, but it was radio that introduced me to all of, all of that stuff. I remember writing the DJs. I used to record everything off the radio. So I would have all my favorite songs um, when I wanted them, not when the radio was going to play them. And I remember uh, the station out of San Francisco, KFRC was going to play the new Kiss album. And I was so damn excited. I got my eight tracks, got new ones, and was going to record this album. And they talked between every song. Oh. And it, it was one of those things. I was so mad because I felt like they ruined my Kiss album that I was recording. So I wrote to the program director, and he wrote me back and sent me the new album. And I was, I don't know, 13, maybe 12. And then... I really was connected. I still have that letter too that the program director wrote me. And that just, it, to me, it was just magic, you know, to be able to expose people to just so much new music was kind of my thing. You know, it's funny you tell that story about writing the letter um, and that it involved Kiss because once I was in my, my young teens and I was, I was a Kiss head as well. And, Were you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, actually, I was probably, I was probably at this point, I was maybe 14 or 15, and they had taken the makeup off at this point. Okay. And yeah, I must have been 14 or 15. I went to go see them up in Springfield, Massachusetts. Nice. And like three songs into the show, the power went out. What? And so there, you know, they go off stage. Paul Stanley comes back out. There's a single spotlight on him. And he said, um, here's the deal there's not enough power. We can either have the sound and the big kiss sign 
and nothing else or no show. And it's the end of the tour and we can't come back. So we want to know who wants, who wants the show. And everybody screams and he's like, all right, all right, Springfield. You know, so it's just the kiss sign and them and a couple of stage lights, two or more, three songs into it, into the show, a sneaker comes out of the abyss, hits Gene Simmons oh, in the head. And they're like, oh, fuck this. We're out of here. And, and yeah. the show. So yeah. I go home the next day and I'm outraged and I write the promoter a letter and I'm like, I don't know people are assholes. They, you know, kiss was doing the right. I was like, I, the kiss army had to speak. And I got a letter back from the promoter a week or two yes. later on yes. his you know, psychedelic letterhead or whatever it was. And it was like, you're right, man. Like, you know, keep the faith alive or whatever. But I remember thinking like the, the music industry, like the record business, like they, I, like they know who I am. They have my address. Yeah. Like I, I, now I've been in touch with the music business. It was I am powerful. Someone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was absolutely powerful. it is. And it gives you some insight to, you know, the music industry is run by people and they're real people who will write you back. And um, yeah, man, that's, that was a powerful moment for me uh, with radio. You can ask for I autographs. I love that kiss story. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be, I don't want to be, you know, yes, I have. It was really weird when the end reached, uh, when we were number one, 12 plus, uh, we beat the, top 40 station in town, um, things got really crazy. And that's when, when I first noticed things were getting different, we put on a Christmas show and I went to it. And as I walked in, kids were screaming, you know, at the fence, asking me to come over for autographs, screaming my name. And it was, I she was shocked. Uh, and I went over and talked to a bunch of kids and they were just, you know, they were the same way I was about DJs back in the day. It was kind of a cool, it was a cool little moment, but yes, yeah, that's happened. That's beautiful. It um, is. So it is. You talked a little bit a few minutes ago about, um, you know, how you discovered kiss and other music uh, from the radio. How, for you in particular, now I'm not asking you to sort of address like the macro changes in the music industry climate, but for you in particular, how do you find music now? Is solicitation from labels different when you're wearing your, your professional on-air hat? Is how you just personally find music? You know, there's no CMJ. Like, how do, like what, what do you do? You wake up yeah. in the morning, you're jonesing for new tunes. What do you do? So I've always sort of lived it. And I can't really put my finger on how I do it. It's all of those things. It's everything. It's magazines. It's blogs. It's friends in the industry who send me things because they want me to sort of be up on it. It's um, I'm serviced from all of most of the labels. I'm serviced from indie promo companies too. And really, I think, you know, listeners send me stuff all the time. Um, I made the mistake, not a mistake, but... I went on my social media the other day and said, all right, I want local records or I, I want records from you guys all over the, wherever you are, but I'm specifically looking for the Northwest. I will listen to every single one of them and get back to you. I got too many. I had no idea how many I would thinking? get. <laughs> I, I don't know what I was thinking. Um, I gave them my KXP address, but I came into work and, my locker was packed to the top with stuff and then it was packed again and packed again. And I still get music and it's random because it's 
definitely not just from independent bands. It's, you know, people are really struggling to find different ways to expose their, their music. So I got an email from an old uh, radio cohort back in the day, um, or a package rather, with a band that he's working with. And without him calling me saying, hey, I'm sending you this thing, he just sent me the thing and uh, with a letter. And, you know, it's just, I think it's that, but I think it's also, I mean, people have their feelings about Spotify. I love Spotify. I get turned on to more bands like that algorithm that helps them sort of, you know, come up with playlists of songs that they think that I would like yeah. is spot on. There's a playlist on uh, Spotify that I think is one of the most amazing playlists called Pollen. You heard of it? No, no. It's called Pollen. So it's kind of, it's the stuff that I really like now. It's kind of this modern R&B think the weekend meets Janelle Monet meets uh, blood orange, more mm -hmm. esoteric sort of. Um, yeah. It's, it's just an amazing, I put it on and I literally will look at the, the playlist to see what's playing and write them down and play it on my shelf. I get turned on to more artists from Spotify than I ever thought I would. Yeah, you know, I, no I've had the same service. experience with that, uh, the Discover Weekly playlist. Every week, every Monday when that playlist shows up, I, I would say 75% of it is either something I haven't heard before or a deep track I didn't know from an artist. Um, yeah. It's really impressive. It's really impressive. It is, and it makes me feel a little bit guilty about, you know, I know they don't pay artists what they should, but from a user experience, it's fantastic. I haven't used Apple Music, though. Have you? I think maybe when it first launched for a minute, but I was already so entrenched in Spotify that the, um, the, the, the switching clock, I don't need multiple. And right, um, I already had all my playlists built. Um, so yep. no, I, 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 I'm, even intellectually, like out of curiosity, I didn't really play around with them. I messed around with the Amazon one a little bit because they were having some, uh, it was like a 15 cent promotion or something right. like that. And you can't help but like go check it out. Yeah. Yeah. But no, I'm, I'm pretty like, I'm pretty installed into Spotify. Did you work for Amazon music at one point? I worked for a group within Amazon exploring whether or not they would get into the ticket business. Oh, Okay. Okay. So it wasn't in the music group, but you know, obviously we bumped into them a lot, and you know, new Griff and a bunch of those guys. Right. Okay. Very cool. So, of the music that you've championed over the years, um, yeah. or discovered, or surfaced, is there a common thread sonically or attitudinally, or is it just as your tastes evolve? Like, what what grabs you about about a new band or a new song? Or yeah, that's a really great question. I. A buddy of mine uh, said that he listened to my radio show the other day and that I play music that sounds inspired. And I was like, what do you mean? What does that even mean? Like, of course, why would I play something that wasn't inspiring? You know, and his, he seemed to think that people do that all the time on the radio. Um, so I guess I gravitate towards stuff that has a, um, an intention, a, I mean, not only, it, it's got to move me, first of all. So 
the sort of spooky thing is one thing. I like, I was, a, I, I also went through my goth phase, you know, where I was really into gothic music and I loved The Cure and, and Joy Division and just all of that. Uh, Susie and the Banshees, it goes on and on. Uh, Bauhaus. So I was really into a lot of that stuff for the art of it all. Not a ton of that music moved me. You know, it was almost like some of the stuff that I was listening to at that time was also, I was uh, attracted to the theatrics of, of it all. I don't know. I'm, I'm very, I like a lot of ethereal stuff. So I'm really, before uh, I came in to do this interview with you, I was listening to the new Yonsei record from uh, mm. Sigaros. I'm a big Sigaros fan. Um, I love Kate Bush. I like grandiose, um, emotional, uh, melancholy. I used to program a channel for Slacker.com and it was all really moody, spooky, cool. You know, I'm into Nick Drake. I'm into Jeff Buckley. In fact, I owe you an apology because not only have I rescheduled twice on you, uh, but the reason I rescheduled last time is I unearthed a, uh, a recording that I did back in the 90s uh, with Jeff Buckley. And it oh, was wow. quarter-inch tape, and it hadn't been listened to since I did it. I didn't do anything with it. Um, I went into storage. I found all this stuff in storage that I had forgotten I had. Um, I had this secret storage space in San Diego with pretty much all the 90s in it. Uh, everything I was doing in the 90s and uh, pulled out all these recordings. So... What I was doing is I got a last minute mastering appointment. So I took that tape in and we got it mastered. And uh, it's a three song set and it is just gorgeous. Um, uh, it's really powerful. I don't know what the hell I'm going to do with it now that I have it mastered, but it is just one of the most beautiful recordings with all kinds of really fun stuff in between you know, uh, just babble within the band and them being very hyperactive and joking around. And it really just shows not only his depth uh, as a vocalist and as an artist, but how childish he could be also. And Was it an on-air thing or was it when you had your label? No, it was not an on-air thing. It was, um, we used to do, so when an artist would come through, I would also try to book sessions at a local studio um, called Jupiter Studios. Um, and some of them were for on air and some of them were just because we wanted to get a great recording of the artist. So um, yeah, man, I, I have a whole box of this stuff that I'm still trying to dig through. Um, pretty amazing stuff. Yeah. This Jeff Buckley thing though, I don't know. And I know I'm getting off topic a little bit here. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. Um, now that I got it mastered, I think I'm going to reach out to Jeff Buckley's estate, uh, and see, you know, I'm sure they would want to know that this exists. Um, and it's very stripped down and pure and just gorgeous. Wow. 
So, yeah, I mean, you know, it's um, emotional, moody stuff. Yeah. What I'm attracted to. So were you into like the, uh, the 4AD stuff? Would that be in, oh. in your wheelhouse? Number one favorite thing is uh, the Cocteau Twins. I just got this tattoo. Uh, 23 envelope. They did all the artwork for 4AD. All those wow. gorgeous, lush covers uh, were done by this company. And I thought their logo looked so cool uh, that I was like, I'm getting this tattoo. Um, One of the casualties of the pandemic was I was holding tickets to Dead Can Dance, I think, at the Paramount. Oh, yes. God, I got to. Have you seen them before? I saw them once. Um, the last tour, it was, what, maybe six or seven years ago now. They played the Beacon Theater in New York. And um, I got to tell you, man. Are you a Dead Can Dance fan? Yeah. And I never thought I'd see them live. Like, it was, it was not even yeah. in my mental model. And oh, that's cool. it was so beautiful. Did you ever see them? Oh. I have. Yeah. Uh, I've seen them several times. Um, yeah, I was a huge 4AD guy. So you hit it on the nose. I have all that original vinyl. Um, I have been obsessed with that label for a long time. My buddy is now running the label. Um, yeah, 4AD has always been a thing for me. Ever since, I mean, when I heard Treasure by the Cocteau Twins for the first time, which is one of my favorite top five favorite albums of all time, um, it changed everything for me. It was also the first time I did psychedelics. Uh, oh, that's nice. Yeah, yeah. It definitely imprinted that moment. Um, yeah, Cocteau Twins, Wolfgang Press, Throwing Muses, The Pixies, Colorbox, um, all of that, Dead Can Dance. Just a huge fan of that stuff. And I yeah, like I'm... what 4AD is doing now. I'm not a huge fan of what 4AD is doing now. They're... They're trying to stay afloat and sell records is what they're trying to do. And yeah. I don't fault them at all, but uh, the aesthetic is not the same. No. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Ed, is there a unifying aesthetic at this point or is it just? I mean, I would say they still spend a ton of time on the artwork, but sound-wise, they're kind of all over the map. And they just started a, um, a like an R&B and hip-hop version like a side label or a uh you know a uh yeah a imprint that they can release you know some of the new r&b stuff coming out mm -hmm. so yeah i like what they're doing they signed the national uh, they put out their records the national to me fits 100 percent um but some of the other records i'm just um not 100 percent there but they have held on to the aesthetic, I think. They haven't held on to the same designers, but they definitely spend time on their the album covers and the design. Yeah. It's cool. The um the do you remember a few years ago when Cocteau Twins were announced for Coachella and then mm. something happened and they it, it never it never came to fruition. I, I I never really got the story as to what happened there. Um, and quite honestly, I, I never really dug into their story so much because I loved the I loved the mystique of them. I didn't really want to know too much. <laughs> yeah. They didn't want you to know too much either. That's why there's not a biography out there. The closest thing you'll find to a biography of the Cocteau Twins is a, uh, a sort of a biography, a portrait of 4AD that came out uh, a couple of years ago, which is a great book. Yeah, they didn't really want you to know. I'm not sure what happened 
with that. I know Elizabeth had and has had issues with Robin. Um, when they were making Heaven in Las Vegas, Robin apparently was doing a lot of heroin and she was pregnant. And uh, yeah, so it, and they were kind of a couple trying to make it work. And he, you know, when I hear stories about them making that album, and a lot of people look at that album as being their quintessential record. To me, it happened way before that record, but that was their commercial, you know, that's when Liz started singing with more English words and actually English phrases rather than sounds. Uh, but I hear it was heroin. Uh, that's sort of the rumor that broke up the Cocteau Twins. So I don't know what the deal was with Coachella because I think Robin's gotten his shit together. You know, he's toured, he's done solo records. Um, so I don't know what happened. Um, I know that she definitely is, is probably my favorite vocalist of all time. And I, uh, I plotted to meet her uh, this last year and it actually happened. Um, or last year, actually, it was, it was last year. Uh, she toured with Massive Attack. Did you go to the massive, any of the Massive Attack shows? I have a heartbreaking story about that. I was in Minneapolis and they were playing either, I think they were playing the night after I had to leave. And, okay. but I was at First Ave. Um, basically, they were going to get them at the airport. And apparently, it took a while for them to get back with the band because Horace Andy wandered off. Oh, shit. <laughs> Shit. In the airport. Yeah, he's old. <laughs> he's very, very old. I got to meet him as well. So what we did is uh, a buddy of mine lives in San Diego. When the band, we bought tickets to see the band initially uh, when, the, when the tour was announced. And we have connections. So we went straight to the promoter, got killer seats. Uh, and I thought I wanted to see him in San Diego because that's kind of my old home. I knew the venue. I was really excited to see him down there in this venue. It was an outdoor amphitheater. Uh, and so I was excited. I, um, the band at the last minute canceled that tour, remember? And then they rescheduled it. Somebody was sick. Um, so they res rescheduled the tour. Um, our seats were the same. We got the same killer seats. Um, and my buddy called me up and he was like, Hey, uh, this is the first date of the tour. And his kid did scaffolding for concerts. So his kid said, Hey, they're already in town. They're here. They're, they're going to be in town five days earlier because we're building out a soundstage for them to rehearse at a completely different venue. So, uh, and, you know, they were doing three days of rehearsals before the actual show. So we got the tip and uh, my buddy's kind of a big wig down there in music. And um, and we snuck into the venue. We snuck in a day early. We went when we knew because we knew a bunch of the production guys. And uh, we went and we sat in the middle of this amphitheater by ourselves, similar to your Rolling Stones experience and watched them sound check for probably five hours. And it was one of the most amazing things. I didn't think 
that Elizabeth would be at a sound check. I felt like, okay, she's touring, but she's probably flying in. She doesn't need to be here at a sound check. She steps in, does her diva thing. No, Elizabeth was there for the sound check for those five hours. She wasn't on stage for those five hours, but at one point we're sitting there and, um, and I look over and I see her on the side of the stage and I'm like, Oh shit. And I knew that she was there. We were backstage. So we knew where her dressing room is, but I wasn't brave enough. I just couldn't get up the nerve. I'm not that guy. And I know how artists, I, I know how it feels when people come up and, uh, want to talk to you and are super flabbergasted by your presence. And I just was like, I can't do it. I don't have the guts to do it. I passed her in the halls backstage. I just didn't say a word to her, but I smiled and, you know, so, so what happened is we watched the sound check. Gorgeous. It was interesting because afterwards my buddy was like, all right, so they're done. The light show's done because that whole, that whole, thing was an art project i mean yeah. the the led lights that they brought in were just gorgeous and it was very political so we uh we go up on stage and uh <laughs> and uh start talking to them and they were like oh you're fans we thought you were cops who were here to monitor the political content of the show and i'm like wow no that's certainly not the case i understand that i'm getting older and i probably don't look like the the teenage fanboy anymore but the fact that they thought we were cops and then we all hit it off amazingly and uh yeah met met them all it was it was very cool 3d and and it was fun watching 3d run around the venue you know, he'd have his mic, so he'd be singing all over the venue just to hear what it sounded like in the far corner. Like running around doing his own sound checks, you realize how much uh, uh, he controls the the entire thing. Um, yeah. I watched you know, a, um, a Madonna production rehearsal like that once where Ooh. she was sitting um, like in the far back of the arena and so there was a Madonna body double um, doing the production and the dance moves and everything. And she would stop the show, fix the choreography. Like she was the director without a doubt. Yeah. And, um, that's... It was, it was, I mean, it's not a surprise, obviously. Like, you know, it's to see it happening. It was stunning, but like totally on brand. Like she was, it was her show. Running the show. She, it was her show. Yeah. Yeah, she didn't just show up and start dancing with the dance line that had been rehearsing for a month. She was there putting it together from the ground up. That's so refreshing to see. Like, you know, seeing his intensity, nobody else was running that thing. He was all over the venue checking vocals. Uh, it was professional and he was in control. And it just made me really appreciate him. And then we talked. So went up on stage uh, met 3D. Liz was just standing there by herself drinking, you know, some tea. And so I just went up and introduced myself and said, hey, I've been a fan for a long time. My name is Marco. And we just chatted a little bit about nothing. And then uh, I said, so what do you got coming up? And her response to me, <laughs> which I just thought is so her. She was like, ah, nothing much. I've done some vocals. 
on a couple of other records that will be coming out. Um, uh, mainly, I just dawdled around the house. And I just was like, I just picture, picture Elizabeth Fraser. She's got kids, you know, she's, her kids are, uh, she's got her hair and rollers. She's wearing her, yeah, yeah. her house coat. <laughs> Bottles around the house in the garden. Uh, <laughs> it was just a cool, cool vibe. And she was just so genuine and looked me in the eyes. Like, wasn't weird. Just super sweet. I was the intimidated one. I was the one she, <laughs> so then the LED lights covered the stage and I was like, would you mind if I got a selfie with you? <laughs> I did it. I did it. Wow. And she was like, I don't mind. I don't mind. And we would try to use the LED lights from the stage and then the lights would get cut right as we were doing the selfie. So it took me and then they go back on. So it took me probably six photos to get a decent shot. And by the end, we were both laughing so hard that that was the shot. It was me and Elizabeth just cracking up. I'm, I'm not a fanboy with many people, LP. She is the one. She is yeah. the one. And uh, yeah, I just, I love her to death. So I was very disappointed when that Coachella thing didn't happen. Yeah. I was like, give yeah. them all the money. If, if it's yeah. a money exactly. issue, give them all the money. Just like, add a zero. Add zeros till they yeah. say yes. Exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I had, it's funny. I had a, um, a fanboy experience like that. I'm like you, like if I don't have anything valuable to say to the artist, I'll leave them alone. If I know something about them or their interests and I can make a connection, I'm not, I'm not afraid to do that. But like, I don't want to just be like, <laughs> you <know? laughs> um, I kind of was that guy. I kind of was yeah, that guy. I did that to Emmylou Harris and, oh, um, Dude, it was awful. I have a, and, and it shows, like if I showed you the picture and then told you the story, you'd be like, oh yeah, you creeped her out. Um, oh, I love it. It, it was, a, she was doing a benefit show in Nashville where, um, I, I don't know if she's in your pantheon at all, but she, uh, she was performing her album Wrecking Ball, which had Steve Earle on it and uh, Brian Blade playing. Like, it was just a beautiful record, all-star band. And yeah. um, it was, a, it was a, a fundraiser for her pet rescue charity. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. And so she was doing the grip and grin thing. And I go to have my picture taken with her. And I said to her, um, my wife said, don't get fresh with Emmy Lou. <laughs> and, she, and she looked at you like. Right as the picture was getting taken. And the, and the look on her face is basically, get this fucking creep away from me. <laughs> Oh, dude, that sucks. And every it's time I look at the picture, land. I'm like, I love them. Yeah. Can... <laughs> you, you think it's going to land. I understand doing that. You throw something out there that you think is going to land and it falls, it falls miserably. Thud. Um, ah, Fucking dude. thud. That's yeah. Really funny. By the way, have so, you ever done radio? Because you have a radio voice. It sounds like you've done radio you even know usually i'm told i have a face made for radio <laughs> no man i i think you have a radio voice you remind me of a dj that uh i'm friends with excuse me uh from san diego um you can no. do radio easily just well I mean, if there is radio to be done i would <laughs> it's all about the podcast now it's all about yeah. podcasts clearly yeah. i'm curious about um 
was there an artist or were there artists that you either threw the weight you had at the time behind them or your psychic weight into them who you were just so invested in and were you were convinced and you were wrong and you were or oh, or, yeah. or not wrong but because that implies that they failed you somehow but that you were just disappointed and you didn't get why they didn't connect yeah no that happened a lot you know um somebody asked me that question the other day and yeah there were a lot of uh bands that i thought were going to be big that weren't that i put all of my muscle behind but i also believed at that time when i was doing radio in the 90s it was a very different animal and i was still learning the ropes you know i came from doing i, I came from commercial radio before i started at the end but i had done college radio before that. And the gigs that I had at commercial radio were the specialty shows, the local music shows, the college radio uh, vibey shows on the station. And um, so when I came to the end, I felt like there's no reason you can't run a commercial station the way a college station runs. I felt like you don't need multi-million dollar uh, marketing plans to be able to break an artist. Uh, and I was pretty much wrong, <laughs> you know, um, and, and that, I, that was a lesson that I learned is that it's difficult to break an artist without that muscle behind it. So most of the artists I was doing, and I was, I viewed myself as an A&R guy, not a DJ. I never thought, my DJ skills were worth a damn. Everybody else seemed to, to like my on-air vibe, but I, I felt like my real skills are uh, doing A&R. So I would A&R the airwaves. And, um, and sometimes I chose bands that weren't ready for it, that weren't ready for commercial radio. Um, but, you know, artists like, I was lucky with artists like Beck, you know, because we got that record uh, as a 12 inch single and he was in the process of being signed. So it threw DGC over the top to have a commercial station add this record. And then they jumped behind us a hundred percent and things really blew up with that Beck single um, loser. And I don't even think the ink was dry on the contract before that record was the most played record on our station at that time. That worked out. <laughs> that worked out because yeah. Geffen was behind it. Um, there were, yeah, let me think. Let me think for a minute. I mean, I, I thought Electronica was gonna be big. I threw my weight behind electronic music. Uh, and, you know, Chemical Brothers, Prodigy, um, uh, Orbital, Fatboy Slim, those artists did get big, but they didn't take over. I thought it was the next movement. I thought it was, you know, we had, we had lived through the grunge movement and I kind of felt like it was my responsibility to help sort of usher in a new movement. And I was so sick of playing the same old shit yeah. watered down again and again and again that I went to London, went to this rave and I thought, this is it. This is the next thing. I have the same, I feel the same being in the middle of this dance floor as I did being in the middle of a Nirvana concert in the pit. 
Um, you know, my heart is jumping. I'm excited. Like it was the same thing. And it was, I felt like it's a culture, it's a lifestyle, it's community. My Did you make it to London at all it. in the, in the mid late nineties? Like had you, were, were you in London in oh, that yeah. era? Yeah. I remember going oh, yeah. to the blue note and seeing like the metalheads night with Goldie and all that stuff. Oh and- God. I, I wish I could have been a part of that. I was a huge metalheads fan. I love drum and bass. We had our own local uh, drum and bass team up here um, that I really got behind and they spun on the air a lot, but I never, never saw Goldie, never saw him do his thing. I don't associate the Pacific Northwest with that movement at all. What was, what was going on here in that era? Like when grunge finally died down and the guitars kind of got put away, what happened next? I mean, electronic music was always around. You know, I mean, dance culture had always been here, especially, you know, the Northwest. It's, I mean, who would have thought hip hop was as big as it is in the Northwest now? Yeah. Um, the Northwest is a place where, where the arts thrive and music thrives. So there was dance culture. There was rave culture that was out of control up here. Um, it was, yeah, man, there was, uh, there were promotion companies and towards the end of the 90s, 96, is when I finally was like, okay, there is this underground here. There was an underground, you know, like there were electronic record stores. There were dance record stores here in the 90s. Um, yeah, man, it was a whole culture here. You had Tasty shows that promoted all the Massive Attack uh, shows, the hard floor shows. Um, there was an entire drum and bass night that was massive here a lot of those artists came through and played because seattle was one of the most welcoming electronic music uh scenes in the country yeah dance music was really big here when you Um, talked about that sort of uh hoping and wishing that would have become more of a movement as you were saying that i was trying to think like there isn't really i'm sure you'll correct me but I, i can't think of a of a, like of a career band, like there isn't a Pearl Jam of that era who still tours no. at that level or I guess no. Chemical Brothers, maybe. I don't know what happens. Do they come around? Do they play? The, the, the Kims haven't toured in a long time. We were trying to bring him in. I was working for Sif for a while. We were trying to fly him in to do a one-off show at the Paramount with a film, a live film they did. Uh, they just don't tour. They don't tour which they won a Grammy last year for best electronic record and best uh, dance record and still no tour. I'll tell you who does numbers like that. Daft Punk. Daft oh, that's Punk, a good out of, Yeah. Yeah. Out of that entire scene, Daft Punk is probably the one, you know, they just choose not to tour as well. But I hear a new Daft Punk record is they were going to leak or not leak but release a single in March. That was the word. Everything's hush-hush. I'm only getting this from insiders. Uh, that they were going to release a single in March, but apparently the, the record is in the can. Who knows if we'll ever see another Daft Punk show, uh, but that's probably one of the bands or groups that I've seen more than any other group. But those guys, their last tour... That, those venues, yeah, they're not a Pearl Jam. They're not a Nirvana. Nothing's that big. But they still have potential to sell out. I think because of the mystique 
because they also won a Grammy for best album. Remember that? That was like several years ago, what, four or five years ago? Yeah. They won for best album and then didn't tour on that record. Um, I think that the size of the venues that Daft Punk would play now would shock people. Like, I think they'd I headline think, Coachella, no? Oh, God, easily, easily. Yeah. But I think that they could tour. I mean, so I think they'd do bigger shows than WAMU. Where, could, where would you guess that Daft Punk would play if, if the pandemic hadn't happened? Where in the Northwest would you put them if you were a promoter? I think I'd put them in the baseball park. Not for aesthetic reasons, but for capacity. I think they could play 35,000 I love that people. idea. They could I play 35,000 here, yeah. Yeah. Two dudes in a pyramid, a glowing pyramid, and the place would go apeshit. What's Coachella? How many, what's capacity? Oh, uh, 100, I think. Okay. Give or yeah. take. Yeah, that's um, Over crazy, two weekends, though, so a couple, you know, that they, they're going to play to 200,000. Yeah. 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 So what, one of the other, I, something I thought was funny in the film was that at the very beginning, you talked about how as a kid, like, you weren't competitive. But by the end of the film, I was like, that guy's full of shit. Like, he's, you were, you were, you were, I don't know if you still were, if you still are, if it was just a function of the world you were in at the time, but like, to find that next band, to play that record first. Um, yeah. Sure, yeah. shit, you were competitive. Yeah. Well, when I got into radio, that's when things really started. I loved that competitive nature because yeah. that was that was the thrill of it. And to me, you know, companies buying up all these stations takes the thrill out. There's no competitive angle there anymore. Therefore, nobody's striving for killer programming. Everybody's programming in their, you know, in their corner so that they're not overstepping. Um yeah, I was really competitive in the 90s. That was, uh, I'm still really competitive now. With KXP, you know, I'm always talking to John Richards, the program director, about ways that, you know, that we can do cool things uh, that other stations might not think about. Yeah. Um, I'm still competitive. I'm, I'm very much that way. I think radio sort of got me there and it was just fun. It, you know, radio for me was fun in the nineties. Um, it's fun doing radio on a non-com like KEXP non-commercial yeah. station. Yeah. Um, because it's, you know, it's a free for all. You pretty much do what you want to do. And how come you're not a promoter? How come you don't, you know, if, if, if what you truly are is an A&R person or a curator, I kind of, that's, I think of you as, you know, the broad bucket is curation. Um, And in this era, there's like, there's, there's a need for curation more than ever. Um, Have you dabbled in concert promotion or like, I could see you curating a festival or, you you know, is that appealing to you? Oh, it's very appealing to me. I, um, I did. I started doing my own little concert series on a small scale up on the hill, just, you know, sort of, I love the idea of creating uh, sort of different experiences by going to a live show. I I was tired of going to, you know, just see a bunch of great local bands play together. I wanted something more. So at one point I was trying to put together an art and music series where not only did an artist show their work, 
at the show. You could buy their work at the show. We talked about their, their work at the venue. It had something to do with the lineup. Uh, but I used to do these shows called Tag. And the idea was, it was a clusterfuck, dude. But let me tell you, it was a really fun clusterfuck. It was all the bands had to have their shit on the stage. Everybody had to have their stuff on the stage. Uh, you know, so shared backline preferably. Um, and what the idea was is once the music starts, it never stops. The players just change. Uh, nice. So the first band, the first band's last song has to blend with the first song of the next band. So what it forced people to do, it was kind of an experiment. And in fact, that's exactly what it was because it didn't always work. Some bands chose to work together. Some bands were lazy. Some bands worked together and then fucked the other band at the last minute just to make a fool out of the other band. You, it, it was really an interesting little taste of human nature. Um, but we did really cool things too. And I put... Uh, do you know the band Hobosexual? No, no. Hard blues. They're a duo, but it's heavy metal blues. And I put them back to back with Blake Lewis, the American Idol beatboxer. Uh, nice. And I was like, I know these guys are going to make this work. And it was brilliant. Uh, you know, Blake came out, their last song was Seven Nation Army. They did a cover of Seven Nation Army and he came out uh, and, oh no, Blake was on before them. His last song was a version of Seven Nation Army that he did by creating loops. He would do the guitar, he would do the bass and create this thing. And then they just came in with balls to the wall guitar. Anyway, it was a great experiment. I do like curating shows. I did a series of uh, Loves Me, Loves Me Not Valentine shows where one show was all about love, the other show was all about hate and breakups. Uh, <laughs> and it was fun, man. Uh, we did acoustic Christmas shows in Ballard. I've never done anything festival-wise. I've never done anything on that level, but I definitely have... Um, I've curated my own stage uh, at the uh, Paul Allen Festival. The, um, what was the name of that festival? Oh, um, uh, no, uh, what the hell was upstart. that? Upstart. 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 Was it upstart? His, his, his upstart. sort of South upstream. by Southwest thing. Yeah. Yeah, upstream. I had my own stage there, curated my own stage there. Um, it's something I, I aspired to do, for sure. Yeah. Right. Well, listen, um, I want to be respectful of your time, but um, thank you so much for making time to talk. Yeah, Lawrence, I feel like we could do this for hours and hours. And, you know, you and I, should definitely connect outside of here too. Thank you so much, Marco Collins, and to Justin Norton for making this interview happen. Thanks to Ant Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and wherever you like to get your podcasts from. While you're listening, please leave us a rating and a review, and thanks in advance. As always, keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at Thanks so much. Be safe. 
and stay in touch.